Hello, friends, and thanks for joining me for this special episode of the podcast. This is the 10 leadership lessons I learned through pastoral succession. Uh, these have been released previously as three separate episodes. Uh, here, I've compiled them all into a single episode that has all 10, and actually it's all 10 plus one of the leadership lessons I learned through pastoral succession. So thank you for uh, taking a listen. These are the Cliff Notes versions, really. It's really the Cliff Notes version of the um, extended podcast I released entitled How I Against All Odds Survived Pastoral Succession. Um, so that podcast, the longer podcast, is the story of my transition. This podcast is the 10 leadership lesson takeaways from that experience. And I'm sure there's many more, but these are the 10 that come to mind uh, right away. Uh, it's 10 plus one. There's a bonus lesson in there as well. So thank you for taking a listen. Thank you for uh, your feedback. If you have any uh, suggestions, comments, feedback, I would love to hear from you. Um, you can send that feedback to me via email at biblestudypodcast2020 at gmail.com. Podcast. 2020 at gmail.com. Always love to hear from you. Hope you enjoy these lessons. Uh, hope to see you soon. God bless. Hello, guys, and uh, thanks for joining me on this podcast today. So this is the episode uh, that is sort of the Cliff Notes version of the um, sort of my story, the uh, how I survived succession. These are the lessons. Um, and so this is the Cliff Notes version. So if you skip the story, you jump to this. This will kind of give you the lessons I learned. Um, there are 10. <clears throat> there are probably many more than 10. But I wrote down 10. Um, and so, and there's a bonus one. So 10 lessons and a bonus lesson. Um, lessons I learned through pastoral succession. I don't know how long this will go. Um, I'm guessing probably 20, 30 minutes. But um, um, let's, let's jump right in. So hopefully you've heard the story. If you haven't heard the story, um, we just summarize it in like two sentences. I came into a pastoral a position after following a long-term pastor who had been there, you know, uh, almost two decades. That transition is extremely hard, and through that transition, and uh, with such uh, a high failure rate, um, those people, those pastors who follow long-term pastors have an incredibly high failure rate in the 90 percentile. Um, just doesn't usually go well <laughs> unless there's proper time in between. Um, so, uh, so the lessons I learned. Number one, the lessons I've learned. Number one, um, if I were to do it all over again, this is I would have I would have had the big rocks moved before I came. I would have had the big rocks moved before before I came. Um, I was naive. I thought I could tackle anything, uh, but I've learned that you only have so much energy. Uh, much like gas in a fuel tank, leaders only have so much in the tank. And so you need to be wise on how that fuel is spent, particularly early on. Um, if you spend all your time trying to move these really big organizational changes at the beginning, um, 
you will find yourself pretty quick running on empty. And so some organizational changes, some initiatives, some issues require an enormous amount of fuel to move them. So it would have been much wiser to mute, to move the big rocks, those that required a lot of emotional resources and, and trust and relational capital though, to have those done before I arrived. Uh, ideally with the outgoing pastor, he probably should have made those decisions even before. Um, so, but my, so those are the big rocks. Like for example, the worship changes, really that that's, um, that's a recipe for disaster. When a new pastor coming in has to make that decision, um, and make that change early on. First of all, I didn't have the emotional or, or I didn't have the relational capital. I didn't have the trust. I didn't have the experience with that congregation. Uh, I didn't have the buy-in. And so that, that was a big rock. That was a big thing that needed to change that really should have been uh, begun and before I got there. Um, my observation is that when a congregation calls a new pastor, and I've been around a while, guys, <laughs> and my observation is there are always things that need to be done. Um, and there are usually things that are left undone, some things that the outgoing pastor or leadership team doesn't want to deal with. Um, and so they just, they kind of kick it down the, kick it down the road. Um, these proverbial elephants in the living room that no one wants to address. Um, but the truth is everyone knows they're there. Um, and why does no one want to deal with them? Because elephants are hard to move. <laughs> elephants are hard to move and no one wants to address them, but everyone knows they're there. Um, and th this could be a lot of different things. This could be a staff member that everyone knows needs to go. It could be a music style that needs to change. It could be a building pro project that needs to be started or completed or ended. Uh, it could be an outdated uh, but extens uh, expensive program that needs to be discontinued. It could be disgruntled members that are causing division. In all of this, it means confrontation and it means change. And this means BGR or B <laughs> B E B E R, big energy required. B-E-R, it's gonna be a bear, <laughs> big energy required. Um, and those things, as many of those as possible, that really needs to be done before a new guy comes in um, because those big rocks need to be moved before. So whenever possible, those big rocks, those big changes, and I'm just using rock as a metaphor for change, need to happen before I, I had come um, for several reasons. Number one, it's not smart. It's not smart. It's not smart to spend the first several months ticking people off, <laughs> right? Even though I, I waited a year before I made a really big change, it's not, it's not, it's not smart uh, starting your ministry off somewhere, ticking people off. I've learned that change by a new leader is often looked at like criticism of the past. Even if it's not a criticism, all change is in effect a criticism. It's a criticism of the past. It's, a, it's, it's saying what was needs to change. And people view that as a critique. Some people handle, handle critique well, many people don't and so it's not smart to have the new person do that uh, moving the big old rocks by the new leader stirs up big emotions I'll say that again moving the big old rocks by the new leader stirs up big and i would say usually big negative emotions um, second thing is honestly it's not fair it's not fair to put that on the new person. It's a recipe for martyrdom. 
<laughs> and you know what the gift of martyrdom, you only get to use it once. <laughs> it's unfair for a new leader to have to manage emotions about a change that should have been made before they came. So get it done before they come. It's not fair for the new leader to have to manage all that frustration, all that discouragement of a change that should have been made before they came. They just inherited something that should have been done before. And so now all of that emotion is directed towards them, where this person who has very little uh, leadership capital, it should have been done before they came. At Bayside, there were a few big rocks that should have taken been taken care of before I came. The biggest one was the change in worship. The worship pastor should have been should have been moved before I had even come. On day one as pastor, I sensed the discontentment that was strong around worship. Because the worship pastor had been there so long, there was no way a guy who'd been only around a few months was going to do this without causing huge upheaval and taking a big leadership hit. Navigating, as I said in the, in the story, navigating that one issue, granted we made some mistakes, but navigating that one issue sucked months of attention and incalculable levels of emotional, physical, and spiritual energy from my tank and from the tank of many others and nearly took me out of the game. It's been my observation that whenever the new guy makes a change, it always seems quick. No matter, no matter how in reality quick it is, when a new person makes a change, it always feels quick, even when it isn't. Um, because again, the church is still adjusting to that new person. They are a change in and of themselves. So I would say um, that's the first thing. Uh, the big rocks need to be moved first before the new leader comes. Number two, I learned that chemistry, team chemistry, is everything. Team chemistry is everything. Now, some of this is going to sound harsh, and some of you are going to be saying amen. Um, so I'm just going to jump right into it and just and tell you what I, if I were to do it again. You know, in some church traditions, it's understood that associate staff will resign when the outgoing senior pastor leaves. That's and, and so when an, when a when the outgoing pastor uh, leaves, all of the staff submits their resignation. Now, whether those resignations are accepted is up to the discretion of the incoming leader. Um, but that's sort of in some denominations, some leader, some um, congregations, that's the way it's done. Or some church boards require that all staff at least submit their resignations so that the incoming pastor can determine within a set amount of time. Like I said, say six months, whether to accept them or not. And at that point, he may accept any, all, or none of the resignations. Now, to some, that's going to sound like a very harsh thing to do. And in some sense, some might be think it's a cruel thing to expect that from associate staff. I used to think that way. I don't think it's harsh anymore. I think it's less cruel than to require the existing staff to hang on while the new leader is trying to lead. I believe there is less cruelty in requiring the existing staff to resign than to force a new leader into trying to lead a staff that he or she didn't choose, nor in some cases would they have chosen. In the latter case, everyone suffers. Everyone suffers. I wonder how cruel it is for the existing staff in the church to experience the lack of connection of the staff and the eventual slide into toxic toxicity. I mean, that's cruel. Team chemistry is everything. 
giving the new leader a blank slate to choose his or her own staff saves, saves a lot of heartache and shortens the painful season. It's going to be hard regardless, but it is less hard and, and a, is a l not, not this quite the long duration of pain when you start with a blank slate. It's the difference between slowly removing the Band-Aid and ripping it off. They are both going to hurt. One is just going to hurt a whole lot longer, with the result in the end being the same. The Band-Aid's got to be removed. Um, how do you want to remove it? And again, I think a lot of that needs to be done before the new leader comes, or at least preparing the new leader to come. For example, I was told coming in, our everyone is great. We don't need to make any changes. Well, that's already a recipe for issues because you know, it just, it's just not human nature. I mean, every single one of those people are godly and loving and talented and gifted and, you know, high capable leaders, but that doesn't mean the chemistry is going to be there. That's true in any team. We went through a lot of pain at Bayside, pain that could have been reduced had the necessity for a new staff been addressed from day one. The chemistry with the staff, honestly, and I, you know, I love these people, but it was never there. We all tried, but it was not my team. It was the old pastor's team. Their loyalty was to him, and rightly so. He hired all of them. He had led them. They had experienced ministry with them. They had been through the ups and downs of life together. They bought into his philosophy of ministry. He was their leader for more than a decade, almost two decades. You can't switch alliance with a new nameplate on the door. You can't. You can't just say, okay, now you need, you need to switch your allegiance from the guy that you've done two decades of life with now to this new guy uh, whose nameplate is on the door. It just doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. So staff transition alone cost us years of discouragement, anger, loss, hurt, misunderstanding, and regret. It wasn't until the staff switched over completely that it felt like we were finally making progress in our mission of more people becoming more like Jesus. You know, staff chemistry is a lot like a rowing team. You know, you've seen the rowing teams like out on the rivers or at the on the Olympics when everybody's rowing in perfect unison in the same direction. Staff chemistry is like that. When every staff member shares the mission, is united around the purpose, and everyone, when that's happening, everyone's job is easier. But when a few people aren't rowing or only half-heartedly rowing because they don't really believe in the leader or in the mission or both, then everyone's job is harder and the leader's job is next to impossible and the team as a unit will fail. Having a team united is, I've, I've come to be convinced and tell everyone, is the game changer. Team chemistry is everything. When individuals enjoy, truly enjoy working together, when they value each other's gifts, when they believe in the leader, each and they believe in the mission and in each other, incredible things begin to happen. And it's funny <laughs> because uh, you can't see team chemistry. You can see the effects of team chemistry, but you can't really see team chemistry. It's not on a resume. It's not on, a, uh, on an application. It's not on a skill set. It's on, not on an academic transcript. A person can be an incredible five-star leader, can have incredible gifts, it doesn't mean as a team, you're going to be able to function together. Chemistry is like oil in the engine. You know when it's there and you can feel it when it's not. When it's not, work is grinding, morale is low, easy tasks become difficult, and no one wants to be there. 
<laughs> Conversely, when team chemistry is there, work is fun, there is laughter, and everything just is easier. I was talking one time with a friend of mine who uh, is also a pastor. He had recently hired, he was recently hired as a senior pastor uh, into an existing staff, not so unlike mine, my situation. He had one staff member who was not happy about him getting the position because frankly, that person wanted the job. So they were actively undermining him. My friend asked me what I thought. And because of my experience, my gut said, you need to help that person transition out as soon as possible. So again, remember, transition is just a church word for fire. Um, and he said, you don't like opposition, do you? And I said this, I don't mind opposition, but I do mind paying for it. <laughs> if someone is on the payroll, they need to be fully supportive and fully engaged in the mission because team chemistry is absolutely everything. Again, this isn't about whether someone is godly or talented or called or gifted or any, it's not about any of that. That's that. Those are given. Th those are given variables. It's about chemistry. And some, some people have chemistry and some don't. I think that's one of the more awesome things about our team now at Bayside is we have chemistry. We enjoy being around each other. We enjoy working hard together. We laugh. We, we pull for each other. We're all about the same mission. There's zero question uh, on our team about what the mission is and what we're all pulling for, what sort of things uh, we, we celebrate, what sort of things we cheer about. Um, we are all growing the same way, and it's a beautiful thing, and it's a whole lot more fun. Um, number three, change moves at the speed of trust. Yes, indeed. Speed, uh, change moves at the speed of trust. Trust, trust, must have trust. <laughs> change moves at the speed of trust. If, if, you're, if you're changing quicker than the amount of trust you have, you're going to crash. Um, you know, leadership in the church is unlike leadership. I've never been a leader in the corporate world, but it's different. I know enough about it from things I've read, studied, people I've talked to. Leadership in the church is different than leadership in the corporate world. There are a lot of similarities. There are a lot of leadership principles that carry all over, but there are some significant differences. And one of those is if in the corporate world, if, if one is given a position of authority, then in some sense, the subordinates must follow the new leader if they want to keep their jobs. But in the church, everything is built around trust. Since outside of the paid staff, everything in the church is run by volunteers. It's a voluntary organization. Most folks are not being paid for the work that they do. Most of the work that is accomplished by the church is, pay, is unpaid work, not paid work, unpaid. The currency then that fuels the organization is not the payroll. The currency that fuels the organization is trust. This means that the more people trust their leaders, the more they're willing to follow him or her. More trust, more fuel. Less trust, less fuel. It's trust that is the fuel for nonprofit organizations. It is not the payroll. You know, I've been guilty sometimes of wanting to make changes quickly because of the I see the needs of improvement. That's basically a leadership sort of default, right? We see things that need to be changed and we want to do it quickly. Um, but I've, I've been guilty of wanting to make those things too quickly because they seemed obvious. But before those changes can be successfully implemented, the establishment of trust must occur. Change moves at the speed of trust. This means that the more we trust, the more people trust us, the faster change can happen. 
Centrusing now at Bayside changes a lot easier. We've made some significant changes. We have made other staffing changes since uh, since those early days, and they've gone so much better, so much easier. We've done staff changes, staff transition, different roles, different assignments, and it is amazing how seamless those things go. Why? Because now there's trust. Trust. It's trust that fuels the church. What this means practically is that people will need to be given time. They need to be given more information and more process. Um, to gain when when there's not trust, you just got to give more time, more time for buy-in, more time for giving more information, so you can gain people's buy-in. When people trust you, you need you they need less information and they need less time to process it. If you have less trust, you need more time and more information. <laughs> now, a good leader is going to give people sufficient time and sufficient information, but if the trust is low, you got to give even more time and more information. When you have more trust, less time, less information. Some changes fall not not because they're wrong, but because the timing is wrong. In my case, coming to Bayside as an outsider, following a pastor who had been there 17 years, I practically had no trust coming in. I see now that this really required a much slower change process than myself or anyone else in leadership really understood. Um, that's a lesson I've learned. The leadership wanted change at Bayside. The leadership core of wanted change. That's why... Um, that's why my gifts were appealing to them. Yet in reality, the previous pastor's significant cachet of trust meant that me coming in as a new guy would need to implement, implement changes much slower, not faster. It's interesting because people in leadership, they, they bring a guy in, they're like, I want you to make some changes. But what they don't understand and what I didn't understand was that, no, based on the experience and the culture of the church, we're going to have to move much slower than any of us really want to. Big changes require big trust. It would have been much wiser for the outgoing pastor to have led the bigger changes because he had the biggest trust. What I've learned the hard way is that trust does not come with the office. You know, sometimes we think we're just going to switch out this person with that person. They're going to have the same office. They're going to have the same title. They're going to have the same responsibilities, blah, blah, blah. But you can't switch out trust that quick. <laughs> no way. In other words, just because you're hired as the pastor doesn't mean that the trust that was accumulated from the previous guy is spontaneously conferred to the new leader. Trust doesn't come with the office. It has to be earned. All right, guys, that's the first three of them. I'm going to make break this up into a few different podcasts. So that's the first three of the lessons I've learned. Um, in the next day or so, I'll release the other three. Uh, and then, so it'll be like three, three episodes, uh, three 20 minute episodes. So next time I'll give you four, five, and six. That was one, two, and three. So just real quick, again, reminder of what they were. Number one of lessons I've learned. Number one is I would have moved the big rocks before I came. Someone asked me, Hey, uh, as a consultant, what do you think? What would you recommend? Move the big rocks before the new guy comes. It's not smart and it's not fair. Number two, team chemistry is everything. If there's an existing staff, have them all submit their resignations before the new pastor comes and give that new pastor free reign to accept or, uh, or refuse those resignations after six months. And number three, change moves at the speed of trust. Trust, trust, trust. You got to have trust. 
<laughs> it's trust that fuels the organization. Um, it's not the payroll, it's trust. So, all right, I'll, four, five, and six next time, guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being on. Have a great day. We'll see you next time. Bye. Hey guys, hey, thanks for joining me today on this special edition of the podcast. This is part two of the three-part trilogy on the leadership lessons I learned through pastoral succession. So in the previous episode, I gave, gave you the first kind of three leadership lessons that I learned. As I mentioned, there are probably a whole separate list of personal and spiritual lessons I've learned uh, going through that pastoral succession. but he this is a list of 10 and one bonus lesson a list of 10 leadership lessons that i've learned and so just to rehearse and recap the first three real quick uh without much commentary you can go back and listen to the episode if you want to get the content uh, but just to be uh, consistent and kind of provide the uh, first three for you before we jump into four five and six here they are number one i would have had the big rocks moved before i came um, that's a leadership lesson I learned. I would have had the big rocks moved before I had come. Number two, uh, I learned that team chemistry is everything. Team chemistry is everything. Number two. And number three, change moves at the speed of trust. Uh, it is not the payroll that fuels the church or the nonprofit organization. It is trust. Um, and change moves at the speed of trust. All right, so now jumping on to the new content, number four, four, five, and six, coming at you. Here you go, leadership lessons I learned through transition. So number four is change and transition are not the same. Change and transition are very, very different. If you listen to my story, you got, I mentioned a little bit about that, that change can happen quick, but transition is a whole different animal altogether. Um, and I've learned that change and transition are not the same. What I mean by that is that a change can be made rather quickly. A decision can be made, a plan can be carried out. Um, for example, a staff member can be let go or hired or a budget can be increased or cut. A service can be discontinued or added. Those decisions can be made those or if you will those changes can be made pretty easily but what is often missed and what i often missed and often is underestimated by church leaders is how much skill and effort is going to be required to see that the transition that follows those decisions are positive what's often overlooked is the amount of work that is going to have to be done done in the transition what the work leading up to making a decision is the easy part <laughs> the work leading up to a decision and do and making the decision that's the easy part the hard part is managing the the transition which takes place after the change has happened uh, the one way the one the way a person leads through the ladder namely the transition really will determine whether the change is successful or not in some cases the success of the transition will determine whether the leader him or herself will survive the change or not it's not the change. 
<laughs> it's not the decision per se, it's the transition. Um, change and transition are very different. I saw a friend of mine post a picture online of a retiring pastor passing the baton uh, to his successor. Um, so it was a picture of this, you know, the outgoing pastor passing a literal baton onto the successor. And there was a picture taken of that moment. And beneath the picture was a celebratory statement that the transition was a success. Having gone through the difficulty of succession myself, my thought was this. Actually, it's way too early to tell. We will see. What you're celebrating is that a change has been made. Whether that transition is a success or not is way too early to tell. You see, the simple passing of the baton was change. That's fairly easy. The transition that was still yet to take place it was the would be the hard part. And interestingly enough, that transition that particular transition that I'm thinking about where they took, took the picture and said, the transition was a success. That, that successor, because he have, was following a long-term guy, um, I can see the picture in my mind. The reality is that that um, successor lasted less than two years. So the change was a success. The transition was a failure. <laughs> um, and that happens more times than not. The transition would include answers to the questions of how people would respond to the new leadership. Those are questions that are transition questions. How are people going to respond to this new leader? How is the new leader going to respond to his or her new role? How would they adapt to the culture and the team that was already in place? Trans transition is so much more difficult to navigate than change. Um, leaders and decision makers have no problem making decisions and 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 formalizing change what is the true gift um, the true calling and the true skill set that is required for successful transition is what happens after the change takes place so i learned that i learned that change and transition not the same um, don't post that caption too quick the, the transition was a success mm, not not yet <laughs> this is now number five five of the 10 leadership lessons I've learned. Uh, number four, change and transition are not the same. Number five, churches tend to be naive about the complications of pastoral change. Um, I've gone through, I went through three pastoral changes. Okay, I became uh, my very first assignment in Virginia Beach. I went to uh, Southwest Ohio and then to Bayside. So I've been through three pastoral changes and hopefully it's my last. Uh, but here's what I've, I've discovered. All of us tend to be naive about the complications of pastoral change. Church people are good people for the most part, but we tend to be naive about organizational dynamics. I don't know if it's our tendency to spiritualize things or what, um, but that is sometimes we think because God's leading the process, that it's going to be easy. Or perhaps our naivete is the result of thinking that because people are good, the process can't go bad, <laughs> but good people in a process doesn't guarantee the process stays good. The process can go bad. Whatever the case, it's been my experience that in general, in general, we, that is we, the church, I'm part of it. We underestimate how difficult pastoral change is. You may ask why it would be a problem to assume things are going to go well and that the process of change would be easy. 
What's so wrong with that? What's so wrong with being positive and optimistic and believing that it's going to, what's wrong with posting a, a, a caption underneath a picture of a outgoing pastor and an incoming young pastor with a baton saying the transition was a success. Well, because it communicates that this process is going to be easy. And the problem is that transition isn't easy. And when change doesn't go smoothly and it isn't problem free, as we imagined, we start assuming something went wrong or that someone is wrong. Rather than being aware that it's not about right and wrong, it's about hard. <laughs> it's not about right or wrong. It's about hard. The process is hard. And that hard, when it comes to pastoral change, is not the exception. It's the norm. See, what we go into pastoral change and we think if it's hard, then we must have done something wrong. We didn't do our homework. We didn't vet this person properly. The culture's toxic. This is wrong. That's wrong. They're wrong. We start listing all the things that were wrong. What we forget to say and we forget is the categories are not right and wrong. The categories are easy and hard. And pastoral change falls into the category of hard. Not good and evil, easy and hard. And it's hard. Um, and But people start using those categories when things start getting difficult. Because why? Because we went into the process assuming that it was going to be easy. We were naive. Part of the reason we sell change in the church as a problem, pain-free experience is because we don't want to lose people in the transition. Let's be honest. The reason we communicate often to the, to the congregation or the people who have to deal with the changes, it's going to be free. It's going to be easy. It's going to be great. This guy's going to be perfect. He's going to fit perfectly. It's going to fit beautifully. He's just like the other guy, just younger. <laughs> and the reason we say that is because what we don't, we don't want to lose people. We don't want to lose people in the transition. So we assure people that the transition will be smooth. And presumably, you won't even know it's happening. It's going to be so smooth, guys, you won't even notice. Yeah, there'll be a new guy preaching up front, but outside of that, nothing's really going to change. You won't even notice. And so in our effort to reassure people, we have we are inadvertently setting them up for disappointment and disillusionment because pastoral change is always an adjustment. And most of the time, it's an uncomfortable adjustment. I think we would be far better off warning our people of how difficult it will be. You know what? Overselling the pain. <laughs> and then when it's less painful, people are delighted. <laughs> you know, if you tell people this is going to be hard and it's not quite as hard, people will be happy about that. But when we sell people's process as simple, easy, problem free, seamless, we're setting people up for disillusionment and disappointment. Because then when the pain does hit, uh, people are surprised by it. But if we just told them it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It's going to take maturity, guys. It's going to take strength. It's going to take maturity. It's going to take some discomfort. And calling people to that, calling that out of the body of Christ, courage, bravery, endurance, then they're not surprised when it gets hard. It's like, yeah, this is the part we're talking about. This is the hard part, guys. <laughs> this is going to take maturity. It's going to take spiritual depth and insight. It's going to take some kindness, some understanding, some forgiveness. You might not enjoy it, it's still going to require some effort and prayer to stick with it, but at least they know that the battle that they will face is one that they can win and they're prepared for it when they see it. Better to have them prepared for a battle that perhaps they won't have to fight than to send them unprepared into a battle that they had no idea was coming. I think that's what happens so often is we're naive about pastoral change. So lesson number five is that 
Generally, the church is naive about the complications, the normal complications of pastoral change. In church people, we like to start bracketing things and labeling things right and wrong, good and evil. How about easy and hard? And pastoral change is hard. All right, number six, number six. Church leaders' desires are not always what the larger church desires. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> what happens in search processes is you call a group of leaders together. Uh, that's why they're in the search team. They're influencers. They're leaders. They have a default for progress and leadership. And you've called those people together to be the ones who guide the search process. And what I've seen often is that, especially in a larger church, in a smaller church, you can get away with it because the, because the search team is a, probably a better representation of a vast majority of the congregation. However, a larger church, you your search team of seven to 10 or whatever it is, is not going to be a adequate representation of all the different personalities and persons in a congregation. So you get these seven leaders together to decide what what is needed next. And these leaders have a, has a, have a bent for progress. They have a bent for change. They have a bent for uh, something new, exciting. They have a bent for, uh, for leadership. And that's the group of people that ends up deciding what kind of leader, what kind of pastor the church at large needs. And what I've discovered is that the church leaders' desires, those namely the elders and the search team, is not always what the larger church desires. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes it's not about, um, I will say this, often what the leaders of the, those teams want is the right thing. The, the search team and the elders, I mean, they've done the homework, they, they've, they've done the research. So their desires actually are probably the more accurate and appropriate desires. But that doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter when it comes to change because what that leadership structure desires is not always what the larger church desires. I discovered that at Bayside. What the search team, when I came to Bayside and they were interviewing me and talking with me and vetting me, what that group of people wanted in terms of mission and strategy and reaching out into the community and all of those things. I, I have no reason to doubt that's what they wanted. Um, but I can tell you unequivocally that that is not what the rest of the church wanted. <laughs> but here's the thing, when you're an incoming candidate, you're not talking to the whole church. You're talking to that select group of seven leaders and you're figuring, and they're telling you what the church is about, but they're not always accurately expressing what the whole church feels. They're expressing what the leadership of the church feels, and that is just a group of seven and their families. <laughs> and so, what um, what those what that leadership team wants and desires is not always consistent with what the wider circle of the church really wants. And so what needs to happen is a lot of communication. If I were a candidate at a church, and I hope I never am one again, but if I were a candidate at a church, I would do as much homework as I could finding out what the rest of the church wants. Not that, not that you're not going to do what the leaders want, because I mean, that's, that's disingenuous. You, we, if you're going to, if you're going to be a match, you've got to do what the leaders of the church, you've got to be in, you've got to be in sync, but you also need to discover 
what does the rest of the church really want? Not that we don't, not that we back off of those changes because the rest of the church doesn't want it, but we need to go with eyes wide open. I can tell you, when we talked about worship change, when we talked about some of those things at Bayside, I can tell you that while 20 to 30% of the people were for that and wanted that, there was a large swath of people that thought what was happening and what was going on was absolutely perfect. Perfect. Do not touch it. <laughs> Do not touch it. Why would you touch it? Why would you change it? It's absolutely perfect the way it is because there was a gap between what the leaders wanted and what a large portion of the congregation wanted. And so what needed to happen, and I wasn't wise enough to do it early on, is there needed to be a lot of communication from leadership to the rest of the congregation about, look, this is what we're sensing. This is what we think needs to happen. This is what we're planning to do. We see that we need a new leader. And when that new, new leader comes, we're, we're, we're uh, deputizing him or her to make these significant changes. And some of those significant changes will be in worship. But we don't like to say that. That is not because what we want, what are we going back to the, to number five? It's, it's going to be seamless. You're not even going to notice. It's going to be great. It's going to be up and to the right from day one. And we set church up for a lack of pain, for a, the avoidance of pain. And um, when in fact we need to tell them, you know what, it's going to be painful. And you know what, you're probably not going to like some things that are going to change. And one of those things that we're going to change is probably going to affect all of us because it's the way we do worship. And it, that's because we see. Um, it's, it's not connecting with with uh, those who are far from God or for whatever reason, whatever your reasons are for changing those things. And so preparing the church for those changes um, so that they understand what it's about. So the, number six is church leaders' desires. Church, church leaders' desires are not always what the larger church desires. And the way you bridge that gap is through communication, through communication, through communication and being honest. Um so um, boards, if you're a church board, recognize that what you're telling that candidate may not be what the rest of the church wants. You may be right in what you, you're desiring and you may be absolutely correct. And this is the direction the church needs to go. But part of the job of the board then is to help to communicate that. Because the, uh, when the new guy comes in and they start making those changes, this is what happened to me. When, the, when I started making these changes and started implementing these things that the leaders told me they that we want that we wanted and that the church quote unquote the church needed there were a large number of people who were thinking excuse my french what in the hell are you doing <laughs> what are you doing why would you do that well i'm doing it because we talked about this in the search process that this was a change but they had no idea they had no idea that was coming and so um, that happened on a number of fronts and so I think that's the part that you have to work through um, is to bridge that gap. So to recap, that, that, that wraps up number four, five and six of the 10 lessons that I've learned, leadership lessons that I've learned. Number four is change and transition are not the same. They are different. Um, change is the easiest, the easy part. Transition is where you better bring your A game. Number five, the church tends to be naive about the complications of pastoral change. We used, we tend to undersell it. It's not going to be, pro, it's not going to be, it's going to be easy. We found the perfect person. You're going to love them. Their kids are so cute. <laughs> His kids are so cute. You're going to love it. His wife's so sweet. She's a great leader. You're going to love that, this pastoral family. The church tends to be naive about the complications of pastoral change. And number six, church leaders' desires. 
the leaders of the church, their desires are not always what the larger church desires. And the way you bridge that gap is through communication and being honest, through honest communication about where we're going, what we feel, what we sense needs to happen, and being honest about the relative pain that may be related to making those changes. Yeah. All right, you guys, that wraps up four, five, and six. So we've gone through six of the 10 already. So real quick, I'm going to rattle off where we're, where we're at so far. Um, number one, I would have moved the big rocks before I came. Number two, I learned that team chemistry is everything. Number three, change moves at the speed of trust. Number four, change and transition are very different. Number five, churches tend to be naive about the complications of pastoral change. And number six, church leaders' desires are not always what the larger church desires, especially when it's a larger church. All right, you guys. Thank you guys for logging on. Thanks for uh, listening in. I'm going to share seven, eight, and not wait, seven. Yeah, seven, eight. I'm going to have four more. So I'll do seven, eight, nine, and 10 next time around. I'll also give you the bonus one too. So, all right, you guys. So again, if you have any comments, suggestions, feedback, I'd love to hear from you. You can contact me uh, via the, uh, regarding the podcast at Bible study podcast, 2020 at gmail.com Bible study podcast, 2020 at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. Thank you guys so much for listening. Hope this is an encouragement to you and helpful to you. Uh, church boards, pastors in transition, hope you're listening guys and i hope you can avoid some of the mistakes that i made god bless you guys we'll talk to you soon Hey guys, thanks for uh, joining me today on this uh, three of three uh, episode, third of three, yeah, what uh, episode of the leadership lessons I learned through pastoral succession. So, um, uh, if you just if you see this, it's, it's part three of three. I'm going to be going over. I've been giving uh, three lessons each episode that I learned through pastoral transition. And uh, so on this one, I'm going to give you number seven, eight, actually, I'm going to give you four and a bonus. So technically five, four bonus uh, lessons I learned and a uh, bonus lesson. And so these are related to the, the podcast where I tell my story, uh, how I, against all odds, survived pastoral succession. Um, and subsequent to that i released these lessons i learned and specifically leadership lessons i learned and uh in a series of like three three at a shot here so this is three of three um what i am going to do is after i release this episode i'm going to also release um a, a an additional episode where i kind of put it all together into one episode so right now they're kind of been released over about a week i think last uh, week ago i did the um the main um, podcast, the story. Um, and then a day or so later, I released a couple of like four days later, I think I released um, the first three leadership lessons. Then uh, after that, the four, five and six. And so today, um, which is exactly a week since I a week ago that I released the um, the main episode, uh, I'm doing 
the the final of the leadership lessons. So, but I think it would be easier, obviously, if you're listening to the story and you want to get to the leadership lessons, if they were all in one episode, so you wouldn't have to, you know, uh, file through uh, the episodes of my podcast because the, obviously the, you know, I do the daily podcast. And so you have to kind of filter through those to find what you're looking for. So all that to say, um, probably in the next day or so, I'm also going to just couple them all into one episode, everything in one package so they can be found easily. So on a really positive note, man, you know, it was, it was, as I said, I, I released this, the original, um, podcast with a lot of fear and trepidation. Um, in fact, I had no intention of releasing it all, uh, at least not in any, no, no real rush. And I had been sitting on it for several months. And then a friend, pastoral friend just said, man, do it, release it. I'd love to hear it. So out of that, I, I did it. And it's been amazing the way God has used it already. And uh, uh, I'd really appreciate your prayers about it because God's opening up some possible doors um, for it to be used to help uh, other people. And so that's, that's always, that's really exciting to me, um, which is, as I said, when I first started, that was my heart uh, for people to learn through my pain, my mistakes and um, my story and maybe, and hopefully do it better. So, all right, you guys, well, let's jump into this. Um, the leadership lessons I learned, I'll just recap the previous uh, six that we've already gone over. Uh, leadership lesson number one is I would have the big rocks moved before I came. Uh, have the big rocks move before I came. That would be the ch big changes. Get that done first. Number two, um, I learned that team chemistry is everything. Team chemistry is everything. Number three, I learned that change moves at the speed of trust. Trust is the fuel that uh, powers the church, powers the nonprofit organization. It's not the payroll, it's trust. Number four, change and transition are not the same. Change and transition are very, very different. Change can be made rather quickly. Transition is a process. Number five, church, and I mean that just the body of Christ, we as people tend to be naive about the complications of pastoral change. Uh, we don't realize how difficult it's going to be. And so we tend to categorize things as good or bad right or wrong and some things are just easy or hard and pastoral transition is hard <laughs> and we would do we would do well to be honest with people up front that this is going to be hard not this is going to be easy you're never going to know you're not even going to notice the difference it's going to be pain-free problem-free um blah 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 so that's number five number six church leaders desires are not always what the larger church desires um so yeah so search teams elders staff those who are you generally uh, integral in the decision-making process of getting a new leader to a church, their desires, their wants as leaders is not always reflective. In fact, I would say is rarely um, an accurate reflection of the entire body of Christ. And this is even more uh, um, accentuated when it's a larger church. All right. So that's the first six. That's all recap. Number seven, new, new content here. Num number seven, new content. It only took us five minutes to get into the new content. So here it is. Uh, number seven, people will call change agents bad leaders up until the change succeeds. <laughs> what I've discovered is you, when you're trying to change the status quo, when you're trying to change a, uh, a, a change the, the vision, change the strategy, 
uh, of a of an organization, these as a change agent, you will be called a bad leader. Why? Because things will not go well at first. Change is going to cost, and it will cost you time. It will cost you sometimes people. It will cost money. Uh, it will cost energy. It will cost a whole lot of things. And while all those things are happening, people will say, "Well, that's he, this is the wrong leader." I, this happened to me, guys. I got called a bad leader. He's a bad leader. He's a terrible leader. Oh, he's a he's an okay preacher, but he's a terrible leader. Um, and you know, he's not a good leader. Not not a good leader. Um, and suddenly, suddenly, once the transition actually took shape, once our numbers started going up into the right again. Once momentum start started going, and once um, income started coming back, and people started coming, and things started looking up, all of a sudden, me—I'm the same person. Suddenly, I'm—I'm I'm a good—I'm a good leader. Um, and it's like, no, I really am the same person. And so, I, I really haven't changed. I mean, yeah, the, the process has changed me, but my approach and my philosophy and my my values really haven't changed. And so. People will call change agents bad leaders up until the change succeeds. Um, man, I had people tell me through this, like, you know, you need to talk with people more. You need to you need to connect with people more. And it's like, I I am. And then after the changes were happening, like, man, you're such a good at connecting with people. You 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 such you're so good at this. I was like, I'm really not. <laughs> I'm the same person. The only thing that's different is that the culture has changed and that we are or actually starting to succeed. So be ready for that. Whenever you are a change agent, whenever you've been called to make a change, be ready for people to call you a bad leader. You're not good. Up until the change succeeds, and then it's like a switch, man. That person is great. They're talented. Wow, look what they've done. Don't believe it. Don't believe it when they call you a bad leader, and don't believe it when they tell you you're amazing. It's like the backup quarterback. <laughs> It's like they get way more blame when it goes bad. I mean, they get way more credit. They're, they're loved more when things, you know, uh, when things are bad and they, uh, when when things are going good and they're criticized more when things go bad. It's the quarterback, the backup quarter. Everybody loves a backup quarterback, right? When they're sitting on the bench, <laughs> I could do it better. I could do it better. Let them in. They could do it better. And then they get in and they're like, oh, they're okay. <laughs> it's the quarterback rule, right? Probably the quarterback more than the backup quarterback, right? You get more credit when things go well, and you get more criticism when things go bad, and it's somewhere in the middle, right? But I know for me, man, I was a bad leader, bad leader. That's what was killing my. That was what was killing my self esteem. It was like I really hadn't really changed, and yet because we were in this incredible time of change and transition, suddenly I became a bad leader. A, and a bad preacher. Everything that I thought I was good at became under question. Why? Because of transition and change, and because things weren't immediately up and to the right and and uh, and, and objectively verifiable and seen. Suddenly, I'm a bad leader. No, that's it's a normal part of leadership transition to go through the dip, right? <laughs> Just to to know that you're going to go through the dip. Um, Yeah, there's a there's a little book called The Dip. Um, it, it's worth picking up. It's uh, and it really talks about transition, and basically, um, yeah, I mean it's 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 
It's a process. Part of change is going through the dip. Um, so, you know, and when you're going through the dip, people will say, you're a terrible leader. But no, that's actually part of the process. So anyway, uh, number seven, change agents will be called bad leaders up until the change succeeds. Um, number eight, this is one I did not want to hear early on, guys, but I'm going to tell you it was absolutely true. Um, because when you're, when you're in the seat, you're like, I want to see success and I want to see, and people want to see success when they think they, when they make a transition to a new leader, they want to see success. They want to see all the, all the weaknesses of the church improved immediately. And none of the strengths of the church changed. So, so instead of, you know, so the two, uh, two or three, uh, things that are lagging, they want to see booming and the things that are doing well, they want to see those, see those continue to, um, exponentially improve. But here's the truth. Here's the truth. I think don't expect less than three years of loss. You heard that right. Leadership lesson number eight. Don't expect, or maybe let me say it positively. Expect at least three years of loss. When you're going through a big, and the bigger the transition, expect a longer duration of loss. Don't expect less than three years of loss or rather, rather, when you go into a leadership transition, expect at least three years of loss. See, what happened when we came to Bayside is people were told we weren't going to we weren't going to see any hiccups. There wasn't going to be any gap. You know, it might there might be a few weeks of lag. But other than that, as soon as the new guy gets here, we only need six weeks. As soon as the new guy gets here, it's going to be up and to the right. And honestly, don't, it's, it's not, it's not accurate out of the many people I've talked to who've gone through leadership transition, they tell you don't ex or expect at least three years of loss, sometimes as many as five. It took three years, easily three years to survive. It took me three years to survive. Literally guys, this is no joke. I've had my resignation written since 2015. I've had my resignation written since like, I'm not, this is not a metaphor God. It's not metaphorical. Like I was ready to No, I literally have it written down, signed the whole deal. And so, and that was when it was hard. I was, I was like, I'm not, I'm not, this is not working. It, it, it took five years. It took three years to survive. It took five years to thrive. So if you want a little footnote, I mean, a little, a uh, little pithy statement, three years to survive, five to thrive, <laughs> three to survive, five to thrive, expect three years of loss. Don't be surprised by it. If it's shortened, praise God, but don't be surprised by three years of loss. I think three years, expect, expect three years of loss and five years to thrive. Um, my resignation was written after year three. It's like, it's, this is hard. It's in, intense and painful. You know, and as I told in my story, you can hear the story, but in my story, it was, I mean, God showed up in ama at ama amazing ways, at amazing times that kept me going one step more. And, um, and that's what kept me going. Um, so that goes, that goes into point number nine. Lesson number nine, keep focused on kingdom transition. Stay focused during when you're going through those, especially those three years to five years, 
stay focused on kingdom trans- spiritual kingdom transformation things that really mattered celebrate every every win you can i i believe this among among other things what saved my job and really saved me in ministry i'm not even going to lie to you what saved me in ministry was um that that there were changed lives that lives were being changed through the ministry that lives were being changed through what we were trying to do um that and 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 so um as a as a you know as the way god has wired me my gifts are in evangelism and preaching and so i leaned hard on those gifts i celebrated every salvation you know i i worked extra hard on my preaching um those things that i was naturally passionate about and gifted at i leaned into those things and i celebrated every victory every time there was a life restored every baptism every commitment to christ every new person coming to church giving it a shot celebrate those you got to celebrate the kingdom transformation and celebrate it big where everyone can see it because a lot of people who will be discouraged they won't see those things you know we in ministry we tend to see all the good things that are going on we hear the junk too <laughs> you know what i'm saying we hear the junk too but we also see victories that no one else sees the only way we can communicate that uh the only way i should say the only way the rest of the body of christ knows about that the rest of the community is for us to celebrate it um whether through testimony through video through uh emails through newsletter whatever whatever your communication processes are telling the stories over and over of transformation um i really believe that was instrumental in saving my job because people who get it people who really understand what the church is about that the church is not a a, a big business trying to get bigger numbers and bigger budgets and um uh, bigger buildings but they understand that the church is about changed lives and people entering into relationship with God through Jesus and then using their gifts and talents to spread that 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 uh that that message uh into the world to make uh disciples who make disciples people that get that they'll respond to change lives they they'll they, they'll see that no that's what we're should be about that's that's what really matters and so keep ra- razor focused on that man um on kingdom transformation um i I'll, I'll tell you man what there as i said my resignation was written and this was no joke um as i tell in the story about the roller coaster group um literally during that time i had my resignation written and it was the end of the week it was like thursday and i had my resignation written i was going to turn it in monday um that was done and this is the kind of thing that god would do but i had breakfast with a with a guy on uh the next morning and uh he was new to the church he was one of the members of the roller st- roller coaster group um and i had breakfast with him at a cracker barrel and he, obviously he had no idea the firestorm i was in and what was going on and he just shared with me his story that he had been raised a pastor's kid he's about my age he was raised a pastor's kid and hadn't been to church in d- decades um he saw all the crap that happened in churches and didn't want any part of it um and so for years he you know he's like no thank you and but he had given bayside a try and he was loving it and he felt welcome and he was building friendships and connections he was growing he was um actually um excited to be at church and uh, his family his wife and kids were were thriving and it was in that moment having breakfast i was like almost out of a personal obligation uh, to this friend of mine who be, he's become a very good friend i was like i can't quit i can't quit for him 
if for no other reason than this man sitting right across the table from me, I can't quit because of him. Because I can't do that to him. I literally, it was like I was looking at my own kids in in 20 years. And I was like, I don't, I, I don't, I don't want my kids, I want my kids to see a positive church experience. So I can't quit. And um, I don't think he ever knows. I've never actually shared it with him. He, when he, if he hears this, he's going to know who I'm talking about. <laughs> but honestly, he's the one who kept me from resigning that day. Um, literally had my resume or my, uh, my, my, uh, my resume, my resignation ready. And it was, um, it was because of him that I stuck it out and, um, and didn't do it. Man. Kingdom transformation. I saw that's an example, right? Kingdom transformation. God was changing his life. That's what kept me in the game. You know, and and leader, a pastoral leader, that's what's going to keep us in the game, right? We've got to focus on life change because that's why we got in this deal to begin with, was to see people's lives changed, to see people come and meet Christ and get on fire and, and alive with the gospel. And so we've got to focus on those things and see those things and celebrate those things. All right, that's number nine. Seven uh, was people will call change agents idiots. (laughs) No, they will call them bad leaders up until the change succeeds, and then they're amazing leaders. Number eight, don't expect less than three years of loss, or to say it positively, expect at least three years of loss. Three years to survive, five to thrive. Three years to survive, five to thrive. Number nine, Keep focused on kingdom transformation. Celebrate every win, every single win. Number 10. Now, this is a, definitely a spiritual lesson here that I learned. Um, and I've alluded, it, alluded, alluded to it in the podcast of my story. And that is this. The sheep-shepherd relationship of John chapter 10 is real. Um. You know, you can't just switch out a new leader and expect the sheep to follow. Um, It goes back to the idea of trust fuels the organization, um, not the payroll. Um, The, um, you know, you think about my situation where I came into a situation where the same leader had been in place for almost two decades. And those, the sheep, the people of God had, were used to listening to the voice of that shepherd. And suddenly you remove that shepherd and you put a new shepherd in and there's, they don't even understand why they're frustrated. They don't even understand why they aren't happy. And I think there needs to be sufficient teaching to the body of Christ about John 10 and the sheep shepherd relationship and how the sheep are going to feel uh, disoriented, uh, confused, frustrated, um, when there's a new shepherd, because the voice is different. John 10, um, 10, I'm not going to read it all, but I'm going to read, um, beginning at verse five, just one verse, John 10, five, but they will never verse, um, this is regarding the sheep, but they will never, the sheep will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. The sheep know the shepherd's voice. John 10, 5. Again, I'll say it again. They will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize 
a stranger's voice. So you think about people who'd been sitting under that same pastor for years and years and years, and the way they talk about scripture, the way they talk about spiritual things, the way they talk about life itself is in a certain voice. And the sheep have heard that. They've been trained in that. Not only, not, not just that, but they, they've done life together. And then there's a stranger up there who may be talking about the same things. Talking from the same book, the Bible. Sharing also life experiences, but it's a different voice. And what does that mean? I mean, the sheep know the shepherd's voice. What is that based on? It's based on trust. <laughs> it goes back to the trust relationship. They have a relationship with that shepherd that's based on trust and shared experience. And then you put a stranger up there where there's no, no shared life yet. There's no shared um, experiences, very little shared experiences and a different voice and zero trust. And that is why it's hard. You've got to, that's got to be built. And I think people need to, the body of Christ, we need to let people know that and have them be aware of that. That it's a normal reaction. And so as a shepherd, you've got to you know, work to build that trust, build those relationships. I, I mentioned in the story as well, when I first stood up to preach at uh, Bayside, it was it, you're preaching to just blank faces. You know a few names. You know practically no, no stories. You've had zero shared experience. And it's only after some time and experience and getting to know each other over months and really over years that that new sheep shepherd relationship starts to bond. I think we underestimate, we underestimate, or we don't even talk about the reality of the sheep and shepherd relationship. I even hear church people, and I know it's well-meaning, but, but like, well, I don't go there for the pastor. Good. I mean, you shouldn't go to church just for the pastor, but guys, don't underestimate the power of the sheep shepherd relationship. The truth is, and you look at all the studies of why people go to church or why they go to a certain church, and it is because primarily, often, because of the preacher, because of the one who's preaching. And, and they have great children's ministries. And they have sometimes people will sacrifice some of those things for a while for their kids, perhaps. But most people go to churches because they feel some kind of connection with the shepherd the main person or persons who are expounding the word of God. And so they say, you shouldn't go, you shouldn't go to church because of the pastor. You should just go to church because you love Jesus. That's true, 100%. That does not mean that that sheep shepherd relationship isn't real because it is. It is very real. So um, we'd be wise to... Um, to take it seriously. All right, that's all 10 of them. But I told you I was going to give you a bonus one. So, so uh, let me go over all, all, run through all 10 of them. And I'm going to give you the bonus one before we wrap up. So going back to number one, number one, uh, have all the, as many of the big rocks moved before the new guy comes. I would have done that. I'd have had them move before I come. Big changes that you could do that first. Number two, team chemistry is everything. Number three, change moves at the speed of trust. Number four, change and transition are not the same. They're very different. Number five, church tends to be a night tends to be naive about the complications of pastoral change. We all want the best. We all want it's good, but we are naive about how hard it is. Number six, church leaders desire, uh, churches leaders desire, desires are not always what the larger church desires. 
Um, so search teams, elder staff, what they desire is not always what the whole church desires. Number seven, people, people will call change agents bad leaders up until the change succeeds. Number eight, expect at least three years of loss. Three to survive, five to, five to thrive. <laughs> Number nine, keep focused on kingdom transformation. Celebrate every single changed life. Celebrate it and preach about it. Preach, focus, zero in on changed lives. Number 10, the sheep-shepherd relationship of John 10 is real. It's a real deal. All right, number 11, then we'll wrap up, guys. Thanks for staying on and, and listening to these uh, 10 lessons, I've leadership lessons I've learned through pastoral succession. Again, there's a whole list of personal lessons I learned about myself, about relationships, um, but uh, these are some of the top 10 leadership lessons that I've learned. And so here's the bonus one, guys, number 11. The key to success is sometimes just outlasting your critics. The key to success is sometimes just about outlasting your critics. Having more grit, having more staying power, having more determination, having more perseverance than your critics. Sometimes that's the key to success. It's just you're not going to quit. They're going to quit before you quit. They're going to give up before you give up. That you're not not out of stubbornness, not out of like I, I'm, I'm clinging to power, but I am I am going to stick with this vision because I believe in this vision. I believe in where we're going, and you can criticize me, you can you can cut me down, you can even slander me, you can mock me, you can do whatever you want to do, but you will quit on this vision before I will. So the key to success is sometimes just being willing to outlast your critics. So, all right, you guys, I hope this was helpful to you. I'd love to hear from you. If you have um, things you want to let me know about, positive things that are encouraging to you, way th ways these lessons have helped you or ways that I can help you. If you have uh, ways that you'd like for me to help you, um, I, I would love to do that. If you're in transition or you're uh, beginning a leadership transition and you'd like someone to just kind of uh, bounce some questions off, off of, I'd be willing to do that. I'd be glad to help in any way I can. Thank you so much. Again, I'm going to also in a few days, put these all in one package. So the story and all 10 of the lessons learned will be all in the same place. But for now, enjoy this three of three uh, episode that wraps up the 10 lessons I learned through Pastoral Succession. God bless you guys. Thank you so much. Love each of you. You guys have a great day.